Welcome to Urban Limitrophe, a Toronto-based podcast exploring the various initiatives happening in cities across the African continent to creatively solve problems, support their communities, create vibrant urban spaces, and build better cities overall. I'm your host, Alexandra, and join me as I explore this episode's topic, public libraries. Why are public libraries important for cities to have? This is a really interesting question. And when I started my research, I was more kind of thinking of, you know, how how do people uh, use these spaces in their daily lives? And so I was asking people questions when I was doing interviews. of like, what do you think the library is for? What do you use it for? And I got a variety of details, but a very similar answer from almost everyone that I interviewed. That's Professor Leah Fredrickson. She was one of my professors during my time studying at the University of Toronto. And over the years, she's also with whom I discussed the often overlooked but deeply interesting topic of public libraries. Which was interesting because a lot of them really fundamentally disagreed on questions about like how much should the budget be or should the budget be increased or should it be cut? So these very politicized issues, the people I interviewed um, differed very significantly on, but they all seemed to kind of agree that what's important about these spaces is that they can be used for, you know, kind of whatever purpose someone has in mind and um, can be used by anyone for those purposes. And I think that that is, I think that that is a really important point, like the fact that, you know, libraries are um, a public service, but one that using it is really voluntary. So unlike a lot of other public services, there's nothing compulsory about going to a library. What is compulsory when you're in the library is to follow these kind of explicit rules, but also the sort of norms of um, how people are, you know, expected to kind of behave in that space, which is those norms of, you know, speaking softly and not interfering with anybody else and kind of observing the authoritativeness of like how the shelves are organized and the staff who are there to enforce the rules and so on. And so as a researcher, when I get the same response from people, what that makes me think is that I'm not asking the right questions. And so I shifted my um, orientation in my research to looking at the kind of historical evolution of public libraries because I was feeling like there must be some basis for why so many people are saying essentially the same thing. But saying essentially the same thing, which is kind of a, um, a kind of claim about, well, it's for anyone and it's for everything. And for me and my academic background, but also my life experiences, you know, as a kind of politically engaged person and Whenever somebody says something for everyone, that is that kind of twigs me a bit because there's forms of inclusion which are like proactive and expansive and generative and empowering for people. And then there's forms of inclusion which are um, kind of passive, where it's sort of like, okay, well, anybody can do this. So if someone isn't, then it's because they are deciding not to. And so in doing this historical research, what I found that was really interesting is that, you know, it's, it's um, 
these these institutional norms of you know how people behave and the explicit rules when you're in a library, they are very culturally situated and they're very historically situated as well. So um, you know there are a lot of conflicts that I found over time around those rules as they're developing and those norms as they're being kind of tested and pushed against. And so that's where I started to kind of direct my attention is, is kind of like, okay, well, how did this idea that it's for anyone come about? And what does it mean that anybody can do whatever they want in these spaces when there is also still kind of a framework? Um, and a structure that is not necessarily useful for a lot of people, right? So being expected to behave in a certain way that isn't really explained or doesn't conform to what someone wants to do in that space, which may be to socialize or to share ideas or, you know, to have some kind of interaction. Um, you know, so how does, how does that happen over time? And so what I found is, you know, historically, the idea of a, like a municipal public library as a as a city service is something that comes out of the like late later 19th century industrial revolution, and not exclusively, but in a very specific way in like in industrial cities in England and the United States, um, where you know they they didn't really start as these kind of really inclusive and expansive institutions, they were very much rooted in this idea of having to control the working classes and the people who were kind of advancing through the class system with some mobility to the kind of lower middle classes. And so the idea was that there is these institutions operated by elites to influence and affect not just the kind of um, public behavior of people when they're in a library, but the the um, their kind of intellectual um, viewed as like sort of their intellectual development. So that control gets extended not not only to what people are are allowed or disallowed from doing in these spaces, but also like what kind of materials they have access to. And in in that kind of his history, there's you know a great deal of conflict over those types of rules. And so um, for me, as in doing this historical research, it was really important to untangle what those conflicts were about because, you know, I mean, by today's standards, the idea that public libraries have huge collections of, of popular novels, not just the great works of literature, but, you know, the kind of, like, uh, cheap paperbacks and like romances and all of this stuff. I mean, that, that is really quite un uncontroversial now, but um, at different moments in this history, that was a hugely controversial issue. And it would sometimes involve, you know, people who used libraries asking for those materials and demanding them. And then, and it would sometimes involve, you know, sort of frontline librarians and, and library staff who work directly with users, sometimes, sometimes those employees would be in favor of having more popular materials and sometimes they would be really against having more popular materials. And so their relationship to the people coming into libraries would, you know, could be very um, conditioned by those desires. Fun fact. I actually spent most of my teenage years working at a branch of the Toronto Public Library. 
And in those many evenings and early Saturday mornings spent weaving quietly in and out of bookshelves in crowds, I got to experience the different ways people from all walks of life made use of the library space and resources to read, learn, sleep, talk, study, and much more. I also saw firsthand the delicate balance that Leah is referring to between the control and the freedom that libraries simultaneously allow, as well as the demand for more traditional materials like books versus more modern materials like movies and digital technologies that all contribute to creating the unique public space that public libraries provide in cities. In a lot of my research, what I look at is like, you know, what is happening now that's being presented as something recent or current or um, unprecedented. And what I found in doing this historical research is that really a lot of what is happening now in public libraries and around public libraries, kind of politically and socially, is very not new. So the way that I came around to thinking about like, well, what is important about libraries and libraries in cities is that its importance isn't easily definable, but it also maybe, I mean, the way I increasingly think about it is maybe it doesn't need to be really precisely defined, right? So it's like maybe what its importance is, is that, you know, it is this kind of structured institution that's part of the municipal government. So it's not this kind of you know, radically sort of open or radically democratic type of autonomous space in a city. But it is also kind of sufficiently adaptable and it can be easy for someone to make it work for them. However, that needs to be happening for them. And that maybe that's where its importance lies is that it can be a, a space where people feel some autonomy and ownership in a public institution, which, you know, has its own kind of regulatory requirements that is also not kind of as closed off as like a private institution or a, um, you know, a school which has like a very strict kind of requirements for like who's allowed to be in the school and who doesn't. So yeah, I guess the, the long, <laughs> the long story short, I think that that importance is I think that that importance is very dependent on the circumstances and it's very dependent on the people who are involved in it. But I don't think that that importance can be really precisely defined in a way that um, might be more useful for like advocating for funding, for example. And I think that that's one of the consistent difficulties with these with public libraries and advocacy for public libraries is that it makes a lot of logical sense to talk about the like wider democratic values of access to information and, and um, the right to education and the right to like, accessing culture and having some kind of representation in the collection and in the space. And I think that all of those things are very important. And what I'm really interested in as a researcher is, you know, why, why is it that that importance needs to be defined and redefined and redefined and redefined and redefined over time when this longer view of history shows that that adaptability is probably one of the most vital resources that these spaces offer to people um, and and that it's um, kind of an environment which 
there can be sort of overt conflict or there can be like an overt sort of organized protest against a rule or a policy decision or a budget cut. Um, but in the day-to-day, -day, a lot of it is, is not, not necessary. It doesn't have to be this kind of overt resistance to authority. It can be that like someone is just not paying attention to the rules and doing their own thing. And I, I think that that feeling of autonomy is not one that um, is really consistent in cities and especially now, but also historically. There is still work to be done in providing equal access to public libraries for both those in bustling cities and those in more rural and peri-urban areas across Africa. According to a journal article by Professor Dennis Ochola, this challenge boils down to a number of different issues revolving around broader problems of inequality based on, for example, location, gender, and religion, as well as technological and infrastructural gaps, but perhaps most importantly, a need for more local content about local cultures and in local languages. One newly developed initiative trying to close this knowledge gap comes from the KwaZulu-Natal region of South Africa and is called eAfrica. I got a chance to chat with Grant McNulty of McNulty Consulting, the company involved with creating this platform, to learn more about the project, its impact so far, and where he thinks the future of African public libraries is headed. Let's tune in. Can you provide a bit of background about eAfrica and how the project got started? Yeah, sure. It, it kind of leverages off a, a, a project that uh, my brother now started many years ago um, with the Etiaguini municipality in Durban. Um, and the idea there was definitely, it was embedded in um, public libraries and one of the systems librarians had this idea to create kind of like a wiki for, for the municipality there, a kind of um, localized wiki that represented local people. So the idea was local content in local languages um, so that people, the residents of the municipality were represented online. So in effect, that kind of turned out to be a Zulu wiki. It used MediaWiki, which is, is, is the software on which Wikipedia is built. And I studied that project as part of my doctoral research. It was a humanities degree, uh, social anthropology, and, and obviously, if you look at these kinds of things, you critique them. So I, I took a critical angle on it and, and tried to look at what it said it did, how, you know, like, Wiki, like Wikipedia, how it allowed different people to edit stuff, to represent themselves and their histories and their culture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and how much um, the kind of municipality, the local government intervened and, and actually allowed them to do that, to represent themselves. So my critique of it, and that kind of allowed me to see how it might be refined and extended and, and how it might move beyond the limits of, of one municipality in South Africa um, to incorporate uh, different languages, uh, different regions, um, and different perspectives. So, so that, in effect, is, is where eAfrica was born. Okay, and then in the current iteration, it turned into this mobile-friendly platform where people are uh, sharing their stories and um, their experiences, but in their native language, and other people can access it as well. Yeah, 
So, so um, exactly that. M much like um, um, the Ulwazi program started in Zulu, um, E-Africa is in Zulu. So I I'm from Durban, which is in guazulu Natal, uh, which is a, a province in South Africa, and, and the dominant language there um, is, is Zulu. And yeah, it, it's, it, it's basically um, a, a mobile platform. It's kind of like low tech because um, to, to, you know, allow for um, many different users to access it. it it's predominantly text-based. Uh, it doesn't have many images. It uh, definitely doesn't have any video because people will burn through their um, data, their airtime, as we call it here. That's basically what it is. It, it, it's a mobile, um, uh, uh, it's a website that's optimized for mobile browsing that gives people um, access to content um, that's relevant to them and that's in their own languages. And so what was the most surprising aspect of implementing this project? That, the most surprising aspect was um, how many people used it and, and, and looked at it. So, you know, from kind of Urazi and, and, and me studying that and then uh, uh, trying out a few other things, um, you know, um, different websites that maybe dealt with uh, this, a specific category of content. Uh, um, so, for example, um, clan histories are, are very popular, which are linked to your surname. So um, before Africa, I developed a um, clan histories website. But um, in time, I took different websites that dealt with uh, different categories and collated them all into eAfrica. Um, and then, yeah, we, we only really launched it in um, very late December, early January, uh, late December 2019, early January 2020. So... It, it was mad how, how, how many people wanted this content. They wanted information that's about them, about their histories, uh, about their cultures, and, and they wanted it in their own languages. Um, and that's, that's not to say that, you know, this information isn't available. Uh, some of it is available in Facebook groups. Uh, other of it is available, um, yeah, on social media. You know, people write in Zulu, they write in other African languages, but E-Africa is kind of a, a dedicated um, knowledge resource with, with categorizations, um, with search, with tagging, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, it, it's grown um, pretty well. Um, the, 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 in October, say last year, 2020, we had over 100,000 users um, who looked at the pages. It was probably about 900 pages. They looked at them over 350,000 times. And in November, we had 90,000 users who viewed the pages uh, over 380,000 times. So, I mean, that's significant. It's more than the Zulu Wikipedia. Wow. Uh, yeah, which is mad. Um, so, so that is, and it's just me and a small team of, uh, should I say, a small team and I. Let me, they do, uh, <laughs> they, 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 the content is, is, definitely the, the lifeblood of this project. And it, it is not me who creates it or edits it. But yeah, that, that was the most surprising thing, how, how people really latched onto it and, and used it as a resource uh, and, and, and were really keen on it and, and kept coming back. So on the flip side, what was the most challenging aspect of implementing it? <laughs> that is, well, there was a few things, but... 
I suppose, you know, as I mentioned, trying to get these, these we, we ran these different projects. So one on, on, on the clan histories, one on customs or something like that to, to, to try and get a sense of what people wanted. So, um, you know, that, that took some time. That was challenging to look at um, uh, the user stats, the analytics, to, to see how people interacted with the content that we put out. It's particularly difficult, you know, if it's it's not your own language. I mean, I studied Zulu a million years ago, um, well, twenty years ago, um, and and so I can't, you know, I I can't. Um, uh, as I say, it's not me who does the editing or, or 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 the writing or anything. So it was difficult to get a sense initially of what people wanted. Once we kind of found that out, um, and and built a platform. Um, to, to try and um, serve people's needs, like their informational needs. The, the other challenge once you have that set up was basically getting um, uh, people on board to contribute because many of the people that have this information, this knowledge in their minds, they don't necessarily have technical skills to, to um, uh, uh, you know, write it or publish it online or, or, or make it available to others. So, so that entailed a lot of emails, a lot of calls, a lot of WhatsApp messages, a lot of um, <laughs> Google spreadsheets trying to set it up, a lot of instructional um, videos uh, on my behalf. So yeah, that, that was a challenge and still is as, as we try and expand the platform. The surprises and challenges Grant just shared are prime examples of what is known as the digital language divide. It is a dilemma that is best summed up in this accurately titled article published by The Guardian that asks, how does the language you speak shape your experience of the internet? You see, while Africa is estimated to have over 2,000 languages, not one of them makes it to the top 10 languages most used on the web. This means that there are a lot of stories and experiences about certain places and people that are not A, being created by the locals themselves, and B, understood by the locals themselves. On the one hand, this lack of representation ultimately shapes the rest of the world's perceptions of these places and the people within them. And as we all know, even though history is typically written by the victor, it does not always mean that it's accurate. But on the other hand, this discrepancy equally shapes local people's experience accessing digital content and information and tools in their own language. So there are two aspects of Africa that you mentioned um, that really stood out to me when I first came across it. The first one being the project's emphasis on accessibility by making it mobile friendly, but also the second aspect being this emphasis that you're mentioning on bringing these unheard voices and languages in a way that's um, like kind of all agglomerated in a platform that's easily accessible in the way that it gives like communities of power to like consume library content, but also like create and, and share it too with um, with their community. And I think it really tackles a really important yeah. in, in issue of representation, both in, since it's like the library, so like in the literary world, but also in the internet overall. Um, and you mentioned there's a quite a few challenges with trying to get people to, um, uh, to actually share their stories, but can you walk us through like walk me, I guess, <laughs> through the process of like getting the community members to submit information and stories for the mobile website. Sure. Um, so let me first, on your first point, yes, I agree. In, in terms of representation, it, it, one of the driving factors for this is that it, it um, you know, I, 
for me, I don't understand how the internet, which is this, uh, in many ways this amazing, uh, uh, you know, uh, democratizing technology um, that where people can write what they want and 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 present their views and 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 you know represent themselves. Uh, it, it's dominated, obviously, by um, uh, globally by certain languages: um, English, uh, what European, some Asian languages, um, uh, and uh, you know, one of the burning questions was: where uh, is the African language content that's for Africans, that, that's written by Africans, and and is about them? So, um, you know, I, I, let me just say that I agree with you on that point. Um, on the second um, kind of more operational point, you know, how, how do you actually get people um, uh, to, to do this stuff uh, or to contribute? Um, we worked through the libraries um, kind of pre-COVID times. We had face-to-face um, -face training sessions. Um, we then had training packs in, in Zulu um, because uh, everyone uh, obviously learns better in their own languages. Um, and... Uh, now that we, I don't know when it's going to end, but we're in the midst of the, we're still in the midst of the global um, pandemic. Um, we've, we've shifted that a bit to, to um, uh, you know, uh, we've made like a, a kind of e-learning platform um, online, uh, which we're about to launch, um, where people can go on and they can learn basic um, uh, digital publishing skills. And it's based on eAfrica. So the idea is, you know, on the one hand, um, people learn digital skills, um, how to write stuff, how to format stuff, um, how to put it in categories, um, how to give it tags, and, and then they also learn um, um, how to contribute to the eAfrica platform. Um, so, yeah, th th that in a nutshell is kind of how it is um, or, or how it's done. Um, we, we did a pilot project um, with some libraries in Guadalajara again, um, and and there we did training. And you know, you obviously have to put uh, um, uh, implement some kind of support structures because you can't just say, "Hey, here you go. Here's this new technology. You have to learn. Good luck with it." Um, so we, we we have like content editors um, who who um, support people in their own languages, whether that's by email or WhatsApp or um, you know. However, uh, whether it's a phone call, but yeah, we that, that we we kind of basically train them and then try and support them to create the content. Yeah. It's not always easy. For sure. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that you connected with uh, you ran a pilot project with uh, two libraries in the area. So what were the benefits yeah. of this project for the public libraries involved? I mean. You know, I, th I think the benefit, and again, I'm not going to um, bang on the, the whole time about COVID, but we did these, we did these, um, uh, uh, we did these um, these pilot projects just before, um, or kind of the year before um, COVID uh, became a reality. So in, in 2019, um, so in July 2019. So um, the, the idea was, you know, that. Um, People from local communities that, that are served by the public libraries are, are trained up, so they get digital skills. Um, they then um, create content uh, uh, about their local communities, aspects of history and culture, um, and they then um, uh, contributed to the eAfrica platform, and it's published under the auspices of the participating library. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, so the real benefits for the library, um, I, I suppose, it, is that um, they can extend their reach beyond the physical walls. So, you know, it, it, it's, um, uh, well, a library might be open nine to five Monday to Friday or, you know, uh, nine to 1.30 on a Saturday. Um, this is 24-7. You, you, someone is reading something that is relevant to them, um, that is about them, you know, in their own language, and all of a sudden they see, oh, okay, this was contributed by uh, Ray and Konyeni Library or provided to you um, by this, uh, by your local library. It, it, it makes um, libraries um, relevant in an increasingly digital world. It helps them to, as I say, um, move beyond um, uh, their uh, normal working hours and, and their physical walls. And particularly in COVID, which is why I mentioned it, because our cultural institutions, including libraries, were closed in our, in our lockdowns. Um, in South Africa, people could still have access to uh, library-generated material on their cell phones. It, it, many of our libraries, I don't know what the situation is like in, in Canada, but many of our libraries, our local municipal libraries, don't have websites. So, so, so this is kind of at the bottom of each article, there, there would be something that said, oh, contributed by your local library, and it would give um, the, the opening hours, um, and it also had a Google Maps link to the library. So that, as I said, the idea is not for this project to um, uh, uh, take over what the physical institution um, offers, it's to enhance it and, 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 and to promote it as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, the way it works here is that like each, I guess everything is agglomerated underneath, well, specifically for Toronto, that's what I know about, but um, everything's agglomerated under the Toronto Public Library website. So any web content or any, or when we're ordering books online uh, to your local branch, it all happens in the under the Toronto Public Library umbrella, but then um, like the individual libraries, they have like their own kind of like webpage with, yeah, like with a map saying, oh, we're open at these hours, you know, this is what you can, what kind of services you can find, but they don't have like their individual kind of web pages. But I guess that's just the way things are. Like we have a hundred libraries across Toronto, so it's easy yeah. to have them under one uh, platform that's easy to access. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's probably a reason why um, uh, South African public libraries don't have a, it's a monetary thing, and B, it's an administrative thing. It's it's difficult to you know maintain or keep everything, um, uh, uh, keep up with everything and any changes you might have to make to the website. Yeah, and then keeping the catalog of all these items. I know that there is just so many items, so I can't imagine oh. <laughs> you have to keep it all relevant. So yeah, I can understand that. Um, so you touched on it also on the. Uh, when you answered the other question, but what were the benefits for the, the communities involved? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, for, for them, uh, it, it's, it's to, I, I, you can theorize it. And, and one, one thing that I look at, there, there's this guy called Richard Sandel. He wrote something uh, probably 22 years ago, something like that where he talks about um, social inclusion. And he said, well, in, in the cultural sphere, how, how can people be socially included? Um, and um, he talks about opportunities that people have um, to, to see themselves in the cultural sphere, to be represented, um, to, to access it, um, uh, so to access cultural re um, resources, whether physical or digital. 
um, and also opportunities they have to contribute to that representation. So for me, uh, that kind of always stuck with me, you know, how, how do you try and facilitate it so that people can represent themselves so that their culture is in the public domain, in the cultural sphere, um, and, and how do they access that? So I, I think if you theorize it like that, okay, people maybe feel more socially included because their surname and clan history is now on the internet, and it's cool when they can share it with their friends or something like that. Um, some of the clan histories, we actually have recorded the clan praises so that, and, and their little MP3s on, on, on some of the articles. So, um, you know, it, it's quite cool. It's like audio um, and textual. But then I, I think, you know, just if you say, well, well, how does it benefit communities? It's basically just a knowledge resource. I mean, mm-hmm. we take it for granted. We don't even think about it. We go online um, and everything is in English or French or a, another um, language that we speak. And, and that goes back to my, my earlier point about how, you know, the, the internet uh, uh, on a global level is dominated by X number of languages. So I, I think what, what this offers the communities is actually locally relevant content in local languages. Yeah. Or in their own language. Yeah. Which I think is, yeah, it's unique and, and important. Yeah, Definitely. And so I know that you've actually published a full report analyzing the impact of your work and as well as analyzing the public library trends across the continent as technology becomes more and more embedded in, in our lives. And so, um, you know, based on your findings and what you know, what you've seen with this project, can you elaborate further on how you see the role of like public libraries evolving in the digital age in Africa? Yeah, I mean, uh, let me put a disclaimer up front that this is a, a very um, uh, this must be, a, uh, it's my perspective, a biased perspective. And obviously because I've done this type of work. So, you know, I don't want to discount um, anything that the public libraries do um, and um, the services that they offer and the resources that they have. Um, but from my perspective, as a person who has um, researched um, uh, culture and forms of culture in Africa um, and also um, uh, how they intersect with digital technologies, Um, For me, I think the future of public libraries in Africa must try and incorporate some of that stuff. It it must use digital technologies to say that there's a wealth of um, knowledge um, that is out there that is in people's minds that that is part of, um, you know, the social fabric of of African life and also part of um, cultural transmission um, from one generation to the next. And, and a key element of that is um, African languages. So uh, I think they will have to be to, 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 to stay, not, not even to stay ahead of the game, but uh, geez, I don't know how I'm talking in these idioms, to stay ahead of the game, to get a piece <laughs> of the pie is what I was going to say next. But I mean, to, to, let me say to keep um, libraries relevant in an increasingly digital world, and a world in which people are bombarded with um, uh, different options. There's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, um, there's TikTok, and, and that's just social media. There's Wikipedia, there's um, uh, loads of um, sources of information or entertainment. Um, if you wanna keep um, libraries relevant and you want them um, to, uh, you know, Get, as I say, get a piece of that pie or, 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 or to get the attention of, of an increasingly digital um, user, I, I, I think that uh, uh, 
del delivering content on cell phones is key and also delivering something that those other platforms can't really deliver, which is um, uh, 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 an African language resource or an African cultural resource uh, um, is important. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a lot of other stuff. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, and that also, I suppose, contributes. It's not just about um, uh, it's not just about existing users. You 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 might you know attract um, uh, non-library going users who who would say, hey, okay, you know, th this is delivered on my cell phone and in my own language, and it's relevant to me. You know. Um, uh, that you might attract new users. Um, and I think uh, all too often people also take it for granted, um, you know, that everyone speaks English well or, or, or one of those however many dominant languages on, on the internet. And, and it's not true, you know. Um, uh, so to, to African languages are key to, for, for libraries to stay relevant, I think. Mm. That's probably a bad summary of the report we did. So you can direct <laughs> your listeners to the report if they actually want more information um, uh, about it. But in a nutshell, from my perspective, um, uh, mobile technologies in Africa are key. African languages in Africa are key. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those two very important points and, points. and I totally agree. I think also and on our end, um, I guess during my time in the library working there, there was um, like there's there's been like a rise of like these like digital spaces and like digital hubs. Like they you can now like rent you can use like three D printers and all these different things, and that's like different from what <laughs> you're talking about. But I think also on 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 the other side of overseas and over here in in Canada or at least in Toronto, there's also that shift that's being made to to make libraries as relevant to the digital age and really helping people to to like to not only access technology but and, and um, like consume the different media that the library offers but also being a part of like creating things and like libraries seem to be blossoming into these like innovation yeah. and like creativity and community hubs all at once so that's really really interesting yeah yeah like maker spaces and and uh I mean, libraries do a wealth of amazing things. Like, uh, if if you look at them, if you look at what IFLA does, and you know, you read the reports. Some places, libraries uh, uh, have workshops to fix broken tools, and they lend out appliances, or or you know, it, it's not it's no longer just books. It's it's no longer just the librarian saying, "Oh, give me your library card." Here is the book you want to take out, it, it's a collaborative space, it, it's a generative space that, that you know, that it's um, uh, a communal space, both within uh, a, a particular physical space and also beyond that in, in the digital realm. So given the impact that yeah, you're, that I, the Africa has had on the community, what would what would you think? What would it take to spread the reach of this app, or like replicate this project and other branches across the region? Since I know you're only connected with two right now, and I think you mentioned that you were thinking of expanding. So, yeah, any thoughts on that? I'm yeah, I'm trying to expand. Um, it it um, uh, so we've got this you know Zulu language prototype, um, and we are now testing out different languages to see again if if 
um, there's any traction with the um, content that, that we have um, created um, or will create in new languages. So Osa is one, one language. We're trying a South African language. And Tswana is, is another one. Um, so, um, you know, it, it will depend on, 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 on uh, what traction we see there, um, because obviously um, I don't imagine, I've spoken to a lot of um, uh, people uh, in Africa about the different categories of content that we have on, on the Zulu version of eAfrica, and they're like, yeah, you know, that, that resonates with them and, and their own culture and their own language. So I, I don't think it can only be uh, uh, Zulu-speaking people who want this type of content. Um, so yeah, we're kind of tiptoeing out um, uh, into other languages. And uh, in order to do it, obviously, um, we need um, more money and people. Like, uh, I suppose, the same as ex expansion in any um, kind of project or company or organization. Um, so. Uh, but we're doing it um, bit by bit, and 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 uh, we're now, you know, working on on how to make the project um, sustainable, both in terms of generating content, but also to make it economically viable. Um, in 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 one sense, you know, it it, it it's it's not like um, you have to buy a load of raw materials to uh, um, uh, make something. It, it's not like I need a lorry load of steel to um, build a factory. Uh, it, it is a digital project. Um, it, it's um, replicable. Um, it's um, scalable. Um, uh, but you obviously just have to work out uh, the the best way to scale it. Because one point I should make is 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 when you think about scaling it, it's it's definitely not a translation project. So you can't, for example, take the Zulu content and say, oh, I'm going to translate that into. Uh, and it, there will be cultural resonance. Maybe there will, but most times there won't. And if you say, I'm going to take Zulu and take it to Senegal or Cameroon, there definitely won't be um, uh, the same kind of cultural re resonance. So, I mean, I sound like a stuck record, but um, the, the idea of this project is, again, you know, locally relevant content. It's got to, people in Morocco don't want to read about Zulu clan histories. You know, they want to read about their own history, their own culture, um, their own customs. So again, as I said, it's yeah, locally relevant content in languages that people speak in that context. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, in short, uh, watch this space. We're, we're trying to expand it. So, um, uh, uh, and there's another component of it that kind of feeds into Africa, which is um, a digital skills um, platform. Uh, I think I mentioned it. Uh, briefly earlier, but the idea is that um, a complementary aspect will be this um, digital skills um, training platform um, in African languages, which will then feed into um, uh, co content development um, in Africa. So maybe some of the graduates of, of, of the digital skills program will then write content for Africa. Okay. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay. Yeah, I look forward to seeing um, how this all blossoms. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. <laughs> yeah, so um, you mentioned it 
little briefly in your in your response, but how can people really support this initiative um, and help to yeah further this this uh, expansion and all these different projects that are related to this really interesting initiative? I mean, that's a good question, actually. Uh, I mean, uh, if you have any African language listeners, uh, it'd be great if, if they could touch base with me and if they want to get something like this started in their um, local area. Um, if they have specific skills or specific interest in, in this type of content, whether it's um, digital skills or um, content development skills or content strategy skills, you know, uh, I'd definitely be open um, uh, to chatting to people about it. Um, if anyone has um, uh, uh, business development skills and how to, knows how to scale kind of tech or telecommunications projects in Africa, please call me because it's, that, that would be super helpful. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a nascent uh, um, project. It's, it's in its formative stages. We now have this... Um, uh, um, uh, prototype, as I say, if there's any uh, one out there who knows how to um, grow this type of project, um, th then that is where we currently are, because we're trying to take it from just a single platform um, uh, and language um, to uh, multiple languages and different regions. Mm -hmm. Obviously not too quickly, because then <laughs> it will be a nightmare. So it's step by step, but I, I think there's a lot of you know, there are over 2,000 languages in Africa. So there's, I think, definite potential for, for, for something like this. The reason I love public libraries so much is that time and time again, I have found that there's a lot more to them than meets the eye. Public libraries are not just about providing much needed books or computer access. They are about people. In providing a platform, whether that be online or in person at your local neighborhood branch, to bring people together so that ideas and communities can blossom and grow. It seems to me that the key to unlocking this magic lies in understanding the local community and knowing what they want to see and most importantly, how they want to be seen. Which is why an initiative like eAfrica is so interesting. Because like public libraries, the issue that it's trying to address go beyond the building or the platform in which it is located and reminds us of the importance of one simple yet essential statement. Representation matters. Thanks for listening to this episode. For this episode's show notes and other resources, make sure to visit www.urbanlimitrof.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast on Instagram to stay up to date and stay tuned for new episodes coming your way. Until next time.